Hey, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Lift Big, Eat Big's new workout program, The Phalanx Method. Coach, powerlifter, strongman, and historian Brandon Morrison took a unique approach in his creation to this three-block, six-month-long effort. Using ancient sources and modern techniques, he was able to recreate the training of one of history's most destructive military forces, the phalanx. And that's not just the sales line either. This is only three days a week in the gym, and it's brutal. I've uh, competed in powerlifting, CrossFit, and spent way too much time doing brutal army PT. And this is the hardest thing I've ever done before. And uh, you can do it at a commercial gym or like me from your garage. Uh, He also includes little historical tidbits every week to keep you interested and to keep you hooked. If you want to challenge yourself or just try something new, Go to www.liftbigeatbig.com and enter the promo code DONKEY to get 15% off the Phalanx Method. Are you ready to become a warrior of oak and bronze? Welcome to another episode of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I am your host, Joe, and joining me today is angry staff officer from clear across the country. He is a historian, military officer, and uh, host of the War Stories cast, which is a podcast you should probably already be listening to. Uh, If you're not, you need to catch up on that. How are you doing today? I am doing outstanding. And uh, yes, uh, if you are not drinking right now, um, correct yourself. That's my direction to the audience at this moment. You know, I um, made a substantial choice today, and that is I'm not drinking whiskey. I switched to gin uh, for you. For, did for not. The episode. For I me? Did. Yeah, I actually went oh out my. and got some from Safeway. And uh, Safeway, Safeway sells. I don't want to know. <laughs> they have a whole liquor section, um, at least in Washington. They do. Oh, that's highfalutin. Yeah. Uh, like I know uh, where I came from before you had to go to, like a specialty liquor store. Like you could buy beer and wine in a grocery store, but you had to like go to the store right next door because they're always in the same plaza to get your booze. It, yeah, it was I'm all waiting. For, yeah, I'm waiting for like military special gin to hit the shell, like hit the mainstream. Once hipsters realize that. Hey, I can buy all of the gin that I will ever need in my life for five dollars. Uh, you know, of course, it tastes like rubbing alcohol, but it's military special. That's why you know it's good. Yeah, it's what the troops drink. But at the same time, I've also seen someone drink like pine salt. So you know, whatever. Look, are you are you saying the troops aren't always right? The troops are always right. That's You're- the first. That's <laughs> the first rule of the internet: is the troops are always right. How much troops I? with a Z at the end? With a little uh, trademark above it, the troopies. Right. So uh, today is a, is kind of special in that uh, while we missed the 100th anniversary of the Meuse-Argonne offensive by a couple of days, uh, it was back on September 26th is when it began. Um, but it is also, I mean, you're you're the actual historian here. I'm just some guy who yells at the internet. Uh, but well, that, that's what historians are, too. Like, <laughs> we just make all this stuff up, you guys. You guys call us historians and say that it's for real. I mean, 
I've just got some pieces of paper and I'm also yelling at the internet. So yeah, it turns out some dude back in the day was totally like, yeah, we, we, we did this, but in reality they just like sat and camp and did nothing. Right. Everybody just sat. Everyone did what everyone in the army always does, which is like, all right, uh, we're going to move on this. Oh, shoot. It's all broken. Uh, (laughs) We're just going to sit here and clean weapons for eight hours. You know, could you imagine history books like a hundred years from now when they're just like, and on this day, private so-and-so posted on Facebook. Oh, geez. It's going to be terrible. And I'm glad it's going to be awful. You realize like the, the, there's got to be some sort of a matrix of um, historians, alcohol consumption with the progression of of modern times, um, especially military historians where you look at. Um, do you remember back when it was like right after Pokemon Go came out and they were <laughs> they were doing that in Kurdistan and they were Peshmerga fighters running around playing Pokemon Go and fighting ISIS at the same time. I, I'm so sad. I didn't know that before. Oh my God. It was like, (laughs) it was like, what reality are we even living in? I mean, you've got all sorts of insanity with that war of, of, you know, people shit talking each other through social media. Um, Peter Singer's new, uh, new book, uh, like war, um, which I'm currently reading right now is, is awesome. And it talks about, it like talks about, how social media has infiltrated onto the front lines of the battlefield um, to the point where like guys are, are literally they found each other on Facebook or whatever social media and then are shit talking each other or playing Pokemon Go um, <laughs> or, you know, advancing armor without infantry support, which is just about as insane and or stupid as all the other things, because you just watch all the toe videos from Syria and you're like, dude, you just, put that T-72 in the middle of a field with no one around you. You just want to lose tanks. You know, and I, th- I feel like that's what's going to happen if there's ever a, a massive civil war in a country that, I mean, I huge generalization here, but um, in a place with a, a massive military complex uh, ruled by a dictator, but no real military education. Um, right. and, you know, you see, you've got all this shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you see that a lot in like Saddam era Iraq where they, they had a saying is like a, a, a bath or a good bathus is better than a good soldier. <laughs> so like you have yeah. people who are incredibly politically indoctrinated, but have no idea what they're doing with their millions of dollars of equipment, but it's cool because they have a uniform. Right. And, and like with as much bling on it as you can possibly fit, like the more bling it means that's how qualified you are. Yeah, like that's it's pieces of pieces of flair. It's like <laughs> yeah. it's like your, your ORB or ERB. It's like, uh, whoa, he's got doodads everywhere. He must be very good at this. Oh, no, he's not. He doesn't know the tanks are supposed to be maneuvered and not static artillery pieces. Yeah. And that's why I, uh, I, so I contracted an artist to come up with our show's logo. And I said, I just want a stupid donkey in an idiot means <laughs> uniform. That's literally what I told him. And he was like, uh, okay. And it's what I got. And it's perfect. Uh, it is. It's like the dumbest uniform I could think of. He has awards down to his stomach. Well, Idi Amin is also known not only for his fantabulous awards, but also for his inspirational quotations. Have you have you seen that series of inspirational posters? That's just the quotes of dictators, but with an inspirational background. Uh, I haven't, but I've seen the 
opposite of that, where it was like pictures of Taylor Swift, Swift with Hitler quotes. Oh gosh, <laughs> it, it, I shouldn't have laughed so hard at them as I did. The corollary, yeah, the corollaries, uh, yeah, it, it, it works, and um, it's very weird when you send one of those to somebody as a joke, and they come back with, "Oh, thank you so much. I really needed that today," and you're like. That was from Idi Amin. <laughs> That's not, that wasn't inspirational. That's supposed to make you frightened. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they, they were really, back. maybe one of their things they had, they just had to latch onto to get through their day was really keeping down the British empire. <laughs> right. Well, you know, as he says, he's the, he's the defeater. He's defeated the British. What's the quote? He like, uh, his, his, title. You know, his massive title. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, but it's but it's 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 like leaves out of of all the lands uh of all the lands the beast and then like the British, the British Empire, Empire in particular, in particular, but also ruler over the beasts of the field, um and the birds of the air, but not the fish of the sea because he's like yeah you know what man like I even I have limits I can't <laughs> control those motherfuckers I don't know what they do he knew that was clearly the domain of Aquaman and to <laughs> right. to step over that was beyond the pale that would just destroy his his dictatorship <laughs> i mean uganda isn't known for their strong naval presence <laughs> that's right uh so i guess we should get on point or on topic eventually uh, uh well you know like world war one we will eventually get there through the most convoluted convoluted means possible in the most unlikely ways which is how world war one began with just like some guy getting shot and then Europe being like, mm, you know what? Fuck it. We haven't had a good war for a while. Let's just go at it. And then, you know, three and a half years later, the U.S. is like, uh, things are looking pretty bad over there. You guys can't contain it. All right, fine. We're coming over. Um, but, you know, the weird thing about World War One, and I say this as a guy who spent the past few years reading pretty much only World War One stuff after a lifetime of never reading anything about World War One and just being like, oh yeah, that was some stupid boring war. Is for us uh in the army and those of us who, you know, veterans of the military, um that war is more similar to what we do now than any other aspect of um of anything that came prior to it. Like you couldn't take a Joe from today and throw him in 1863 at Gettysburg or Chancellorsville or, or Chancellorsville or, or Vicksburg and be like, all right, you know what to do? They'd be like, the fuck I do. Like, <laughs> it is so hot. Why am I wearing all this shit? What is this 10 pound rifle? Why? Why am I doing this? You all are the worst. I can't even um, post this on Instagram. Right. How how am I supposed to where I can't take a selfie with these cameras. They take forever. <laughs> I have to put my hand in my jacket just to, to look like George McClellan, who's the worst general of all. Well, he's not the worst general of all time, but debate for another time. Um, but you, I, I posit that you could take a, a soldier from modern day conflicts, throw them in World War One. They'd be like, yep, this is recognizable. I've got machine guns. I've got mortars. I got mortarmen to to make derogatory comments about um <laughs> <laughs> there's there's lots of artillery there's 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 aircraft there's armor you know it's it's the birth of of uh, combined arms operation um which like i said um gets me 
circuitously to the uh, the the, the Argon offensive, um, which is not many people know it. It is America's uh, largest and bloodiest battle to date. I mean that that has not changed since 1918. Mainly, and but there's oh, like so, there's something interesting to that, um, and, and I'm sure you'll get into it. I mean, was was the carnage involved in the battle, and we'll we'll get more into the battle. Um, more of a, a a symptom of the war in general, or the fact that the United States is fighting with a war that not that long ago is training with wooden sticks. Um, so the U.S. Army of 1917 looked way more like the Army of the Spanish American War, um, and if you know anything about the Spanish American War, like. The, I, as a historian, I get sucked into the really minute, petty, tiny details that everyone else is like, my God, why? Why are you still talking about that? That's so stupid. <laughs> I'm guilty of but that. I'm like, <laughs> right. But, but like you look at the Spanish-American War, which is, you know, 30 years past uh, the Civil War and which, which is itself weird. Like you've got veterans of the Civil War, like who are company grades, who are now general officers in the Spanish-American War. And you'd be like, oh, these guys know what they're doing. Um, never you'd be wrong. <laughs> I've, I've never thought of that. That's really strange. You had confederate, you had former Confederate officers as general officers in the Spanish American War. Oh, I see something wrong with that. <laughs> oh, I know. It's profoundly disturbing. It's so weird. Well, it's just like so. Like third, twenty years prior to the Civil War, you have the Mexican War, which is all these good buddies in this tiny U S army fighting together down in Mexico and they make friendships and you got, um, general grant and, and, uh, general Longstreet from the Confederate side being buddies, uh, all these relationships formed in that tiny old army. And then they end up fighting each other. Uh, then the old guys die off. And then you've got the young guys from the civil war, sort of, you know, the, the Confederates who came, who came back to the U S army, um, now fighting together in, in Cuba and Puerto Rico and you'd think they do a pretty good job of it, but oh my God, it's terrible. Like someone should write a comedy, uh, like a black comedy about the U.S. Army and the Spanish-American War. Like nothing went the way that it was supposed to. Yeah, like, and the Navy, pretty the Navy much the did. only thing we hear about is like, oh, Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders and don't forget about the Maine. And then right. history just kind of like, don't look at the rest of it. We're going right. to move on. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, we're going to focus on, yeah, yeah. San Juan Hill, Kettle Hill. That's awesome. Don't look over into the corner where all the dead bodies from disease are because disease killed so many people that it caused the U.S. Army to leave Cuba. They're like, all right, we're going to, all right, we won this. We're going to do an army of occupation. Oh shit. No, we're not. We're going to leave like 10 dudes in a mule here. Uh, and we're going to go take care of things in the Philippines. Those will be over in about five. Oh, damn it. 30 years later. Someone to promote that mule. Everybody else is dead. Yeah, it was so bad. Like whole, like um, I was reading a great article again, super, super nerdy rabbit hole that nobody would find as interesting, but it's like the mobilization process for getting the U S army to Cuba. And you're like, Oh, that couldn't be that hard. Cuba's just offshore. Mm, wrong. Once again, this is a U.S. army that like hasn't moved troops in significant numbers over any bodies of water for a really long time. Really and ever at that point. I mean, I mean, 
you've got some stuff like like to to Mexico, but it, you know it's not a lot. Um, and you've got you've got some um, some stuff during the Civil War, but really, like if you're talking like massive, like not even amphibious operations, like landing under fire, it's literally just how do we move twenty thousand troops from point A to point B over the water? And everyone goes, uh, have them line up and get in ships. All right, where are we going to find the ships? Shit. Uh, what are they going to eat? Um, here's some old pork that is spoiling in the hot Florida sun. Uh, where are we, where are we going to mobilize them out of? Tampa. First oh. mistake right there. <laughs> I went to Tampa once and I barely lived to survive. So I wouldn't muster an army there. Yeah, exactly. It was so it was a disaster. So that's the army that the US has. Um, it's gotten a little better um, by, by 1917 because they've done this thing where they've uh, they've applied funding. Uh, that always helps uh, having a sustainable budget. That's good, too. Um, but it's still like 120,000 men, uh, which balloons to by the time of the Merzargon offensive in September 26. Uh, all of a sudden, you've got like close to three million people in the U.S. Army. And that's, you know, regular army, uh, Army National Guard. And then this new thing called the National Army, which is made up of all the people who um, didn't want to go right away, uh, but then had to go because they got a slip of paper uh, from the draft. So um, some of them are not as enthusiastic as as you would have, you know, probably imagine if you're like, I'm just going to give this whole uh, global war thing a miss. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing they're only asking for volunteers. God damn it. Damn it. I knew this was going to happen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's stupendous. Like, um, and it's really cool because the army, one of the beauties of that army is it's so new. It's so uh, open to change. Like, they're the, so they'll, they'll assume all kinds of risks just to, like, get stuff to happen. So, like, for example... There, the army's like, or the war department's like, uh, I don't know how we clothe and equip two million men, uh, but Sears does. Uh, so, <laughs> like, no, I, I shit you not. They national, they, they didn't nationalize Sears, but they went to Sears leadership and were like, we need this. If you if you can provide it, we're gonna commission you all. Like literally, congratulations, you're now a colonel, Mister. Mr. Mid-Level CEO. Uh, <laughs> Field Marshal Roebuck. Yeah, no, ex- exactly. Like they, and that was actually, that happened between, in both World Wars One and Two, is that uh, the War Department gave commissions to civilian industry uh, employees or magnates or whatever um, who could provide like the type of skill set that we just don't have in the Army because we're, you know, we're made for war, not necessarily supply chains. Well, we were. And now we're apparently in every business. But, um, but that you know that was one of the cool things that developed in in World War One is you get all these guys um, in specific. It, it, it would be like now, like nationalizing Amazon and making Jeff Bay like and like commissioning um, commissioning everybody in Amazon. Which is kind of a scary thought, actually. That might happen. <laughs> I mean, or, or they'll just take over. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have moved to the point of getting rid of a lot of low-level logistics jobs or MOSs and then giving them to contractors. 
That we definitely have. And in that aspect, we're much more similar to uh, the Civil War, um, which is kind of alarming because the term shoddy, as in made cheaply, is crap, comes from contractors selling to the government during the Civil War. Um, Oh, boy. Good thing (laughs) that hasn't happened. Right? Anybody who's ever deployed with KBO, maybe I shouldn't throw names out there, but... No, definitely KBR. KBR, uh, Dynecor. Uh, I, I uh, mostly worked with KBR and Dynecor. Yeah, I did some. Oh, what was the big one? Oh, crap. Anyway, it's it's an associate affiliate of them. But yeah, um, that's yeah, that's that's kind of. I don't. I don't want to paint all contractors with a broad brush because I have known good contractors, but I think sure. it's a it's a danger that lies therein with the uh, yeah with that I agree. model. I, I I know plenty of people I worked with who are good people who end up becoming contractors. There um, we go. I like the way you put that. Yeah. I, I haven't seen them in years, but um, <laughs> you assume that they still have a moral compass and that, uh, you know, a, I would a hope so. salary per year hasn't destroyed it. I would hope so. Um, <laughs> but also then there's things like, you know, they send contracts with the government. And then, uh, you know, a lot of those contracts are like, we'll supply X amount of people. And, you know, the idea is that people like, well, the former Blackwater and people like them would supply hundreds of these professionally trained, like former ranger types. Mm-hmm. And when in reality, there are a bunch of random dudes from third world countries getting paid 20, right. 20 bucks a month oh, yeah. and forced to live in connexes. Dude, <laughs> I, I loved, I loved walking out, um, to the minefield behind our talk and be like, Oh, who's clearing this? Oh shit. It's some dude with the, with like a face shield riot helmet and a leather, like, uh, like those, you know, those leather, um, smocks that you get when you go to get an x-ray. Yeah. Yeah. That was totally protect against frag. Yeah. Uh, and they're poking at the ground with sticks and shovels. And I'm like, Oh shit. Okay. I'm going back behind the Hescos now. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, that was, that was, a. That was a nice for like first or second day in Afghanistan. But, um, but you know, that, that, um, while that was kind of happening at higher levels, um, down at the lower levels, it was much more a, um, you know, the army sustained itself and drove itself and which, which in itself was incredible. Um, some of the logistics feats, um, of the American expeditionary force in world war one are just absolutely stupid. Pendous, especially considering, you know, they did all this in a year and a half. Um, they put two million U.S. troops in Europe in like eighteen months. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't even know if we could do that. Now. Like, I don't think we could. I, I, I don't know. I mean, they had never done it before. It was just like, well, let's see what happens. <laughs> we got to do this. We got a war on. Um, so, so the U.S. Army really, so the first units get there in 1917 in the summer, and they're just, they're a very, like, they're a mixed motley force of some guys from First ID and some engineers and support units, and they're like, you know, they're paraded around, like, the Americans are here, and they're like, yeah, there's 10 of us. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but eventually, by... Was it, was by it the, that Pershing's big speech of uh, Lafayette, we've returned, or something like that? Yeah, Lafayette, we are here, which is delivered by one of his staff officers, actually. Uh, oh, it wasn't major. him. Okay. It wasn't even him. Yeah, exactly. He gets credit for all of it, though. But um, yeah, Lafayette, we are here, which, you know, um, yeah, another random history rabbit trail. But the French 
gave us independence. Like any idea yes. that we could have ever won independence without French intervention is laughable. Um, oh, absolutely. Because they tied down the Royal Navy and uh, and we were actually able to get supplies in our country. And we're like, oh, what are these? Oh, wow. Weapons that yeah. work. Phenomenal food. This is nice. And, you know, money. <laughs> ironically, uh, Lafayette himself would going to be de- denounced during the revolution and have to run for right. his life. So, right. yeah, yeah, it was just 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 awesome. And then um, the the, you know, the one of the saddest tragedies, I think, is, you know, the the after World War One, um, the French were were so thankful for our intervention. I mean, and, and, and the French. Oh, you're in danger of starting me down like a, a rant right now, but I will, I will. I'm a European will, history major. It's what I do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but like we see everything, everything in the U S that we see about world war one is British themed. Sure. And I'm guilty know, of I that myself. Same. Like I grew up an Anglophile and I'm like, Oh gosh, the British at the Somme. Oh, they must've won the war. The, brave chaps um and right. then you look at the french numbers and you're like holy motherfucking shit i didn't know that there were that many people around who carried rifles because they're all dead now yeah oh my god and, um and it shadows a lot of um you know interwar history where people are like how yeah. could how could they possibly believe that the maginot line was a good idea and um you know why did they want such a punitive uh treaty with germany you know and if you take off the rose tinted glasses of it being 2018, I fucking get it. Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. And, and not only that, but they maintain like all the jokes about, Oh, the French army sucks. The French army's never been able to do anything. I'm like, I mean, they've a, apart from when they were the premier land power from like, uh, I don't know, like 800 to 1939. Uh, like, yeah, you're right. I guess they never really did much of anything other than have a really good army. Like, yeah, um, from a from a historical perspective, looking at the um, like the 18th century, like if you wanted good soldiers before a unified Germany, yeah, you could go to Prussia, but they were like, you know, they're, they're still reading. <laughs> yeah, they're assholes, and half of them are all still reading philosophy. Like, uh, they haven't decided if they're going to, you know, become statist militants or not. Yeah, they haven't um, established a military dictatorship quite yet. Right? Yeah, they're they're on their way. Um, <laughs> but you know, if you, if you want soldiers, you go to France. If you want sailors, you go to England. Um, if you want people who you know how to drink, you know, you go to Spain or Holland. And actually, no, if you want money, you go to Holland. But. Um, there was a point. Oh, yeah. So after World War One, uh, the France was so grateful for our assistance that they any any plot of land that had Americans buried in it um, was made into a cemetery and they gave that land to us. That is American soil. Um, same with the uh, the wood of the uh, the Marine Brigade, Bella Wood or the. Um, uh, or as it should be called, the second division would. But uh, I don't know if I want to pick a fight with the Marines again today. I'll, I'll uh, join in the net all day. <laughs> um, so, but they, but they gave that in in gratitude to the United States, like gave their soil. In comparison, it wasn't until like 96 or 98, that is 1998, um, that the U.S. finally got around to figuring out the names of the 600 Frenchmen who had died outside Yorktown, uh, helping Jesus. us 
win independence. And you're like, come on, guys. Like, that's that's cold. Like, these guys were really appreciative of our help. And yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it would end up biting them in the ass. But yeah, I completely uh, agree. So so um, so, yeah, we we get there and we're like, what's this war thing? Like, uh, you know, we've 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 done some wars and they're like, yeah, this is like a new type of war. The British and French are like when the Americans get there. They're like, all right, look, you're going to want to run out there in straight lines. But take it from us. We <laughs> tried that. <laughs> it doesn't work unless you want to get everybody killed. So so just listen. But the Americans, you know, being American, uh, Pershing has this idea that he's going to win this thing by getting out of these trenches that have kept people down inside them for too long. And they're becoming risk averse. They don't want to take action. They don't have audacity and they don't use rifles anymore. They keep using pistols and knives and clubs in the trenches. They need to use rifles like real Americans. God, so stupid. And he's going to take the war into the open. Um, And you see like every other military commander before him. Right. And I mean, as a model, he was using Grant's Overland campaign from 1864. And you're like, dude, the only good thing about the Overland campaign of 1864 is that Grant kept advancing. Not that he like fell back to D.C. every time he had a battle. Literally nothing else is to be admired out of that. And it's ignoring so much. I mean, yeah, it's ignoring the entire rest of World War One that has already happened. Right. Right. (laughs) So so what happens is. so Pershing creates these massive divisions, uh, 28,000 men per division. None of these guys who are commanding them have ever maneuvered 28,000 men. Or it's not going to be 28,000 because you've, that includes all your support and sustainment and everything. But you know what I mean? Um, like each, each infantry regiment is 3,800 men. Um, and you've got four of them in a division. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this is a lot of men and a lot of firepower because you got a lot of firepower stocked up in those divisions with three, three artillery regiments uh, composed of 48 gun tubes each, um, like ready to lay down some massive hell. Um, and how big idea, is that in comparison to modern times? To modern day? Well, I mean, it's hard to say because we've got the BCT, which right. is a plug and play. Um, and our division, like divisions are just a headquarters element. I mean, back then this was organic to the division. Every division had four infantry regiments, three artillery regiments, an engineer regiment, uh, and then, uh, various supply train or, um, like, uh, you had, uh, ammunition train. Um, you, you know, you know what I mean? Like all the, all the. I'm not going to call them pogues because technically <laughs> as an engineer, I am a pogue. Um, but I also have a blue cord that I used to wear. So yeah, all the pogues. Um, <laughs> but um, it's, it's way bigger than, I mean, we can flex a BCT up now, but it's, it's way bigger. Um, okay. Like we, by world war two, we were like, yeah, no, the square, because it was called a square division. Cause it had four, uh, based around four infantry regiments we're like yeah square square division is um yeah we can't do that <laughs> nobody we can't maneuver that many men uh the span of control is just too big and so we brought it down to a triangular division which was um right around uh between 15 and eighteen thousand, uh, which is still like that's a hell of a lot of people it's so huge um, but, yeah but the reason so the reason he did this um the british french and german divisions were all around fourteen thousand. 
Pershing designed these massive divisions to be able to take sustained losses and still continue offensive movement. So that kind of gives you an idea of what he was thinking. He's in the same mindset. I mean, going back a couple of years, well, still currently, I, I believe I haven't looked. He ha- he has the same idea as like Luigi Cadorna. Yeah. We just have yeah. to attack. It's all we have to do. Right. All we have to do is attack. We just keep attacking and um, and we'll be good. So they do this. So the first the first big American Expeditionary Force um, engagement is in the summer of 1918. And this is where they've halted the, the allies and the U.S. because the U.S. hadn't entered into an alliance. Um, uh, the, they'd halted the big, massive spring and summer offenses uh, of, of the Germans. Dan Carlin in Hardcore History does a really awesome job about talking about like the size and scope of these offensives. Uh, his, um, his series, uh, was it called the Blueprint to Apocalypse? Yeah. It is fucking outstanding. It's unreal. It's like you you listen to it and you're like, oh my god, I, I why do I do this podcast thing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like that, that's why it's really hard to come up with topics like this because, like, well, Dan Carlin's done that, or Mike Duncan's well, done, done that, that, and right, you know, they don't just do them; they fucking kill them. So, right. <laughs> right, so, so they've halted them, and and they realize, you know, as as any good infantry guy knows like you know you let the enemy advance enough to the point where they're worn down a little bit uh or worn down more and you know you let them advance through a couple lines they break through um they're gonna get tired they're gonna move further away from their lines of supply and communication um and this is essentially what uh what the the allies do they allow them to to overextend and then they counterattack. Um, the big counterstroke comes in July of 18. And this is where you've got like multiple division, U.S. divisions now attacking. And the lessons learned that come out of the Enmarn Offensive, which is, um, you know, July into uh, July into August of, of 18, is uh, the American troops are very eager. They're very, um, they have high morale. Uh, their physical fitness is excellent, um, which is kind of funny because I've I found some of those old like PT videos of like yeah it looks like a solid battalion is all working out together and they're they're all in like uh they're all doing khaki. calisthenics yeah they're yeah. all doing like wearing their full uniforms and then like doing toe touches in in, right, in yeah. sequence right. Yeah, but you know, and by excellent physical fitness, I mean they haven't been stuck on the Western Front for three years with malnutrition, rats, right. and gas. <laughs> yes, that that certainly helps. <laughs> it definitely does. So um, they, uh, you know, the and the French and British are like, we love you guys. You're great. You have to stop walking into the machine guns because, <laughs> like the butch the butcher's bill that comes out of this is un real like it may it, all of a sudden like the u.s like you read the newspaper accounts and like oh our boys are doing great our boys are doing great uh, and they'll have like uh for like a hometown paper like the first guy who's killed in action gets this massive spread um and then like a few guys after that yeah they get blurbs too and then by the summer offensives it's just like this laundry list of names it's actually it's heartbreaking um because all of a sudden they realize Oh my God! Like this is a this is a bloodletting that's going on over there. Um, in just in just a matter of a couple weeks, 
Yeah, we really should have listened to our allies, maybe. Right, right. We should definitely listen to our allies. And it wasn't it wasn't all the division. You know, there's some divisions that 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 managed to do combined arms properly. But Pershing, the, the American doctrine was so much focused on speed and surprise rather than using artillery to knock the living hell out of your opponent as much as you could. Um, and, and it's not until uh, San Miao. So we, so we learned very quickly. I mean, by September, we rolled into our own uh, uh, mini offensive uh, to reduce the San Miao uh, uh, salient um, where we launched up to that time. It was our, our, our biggest battle. And we do, we finally do it. We, we do combine arms. We've got infantry, armor, um, artillery, and aviation all working together. Not great together. <laughs> like, and this is a, they, they got huge numbers of the French Renault FTs, didn't they, uh, for their tanks yeah. rather than the giant Mark Vs? Yeah, yeah, no, we didn't. We didn't really use any Mark Fives. We got uh, Patton. Patton, when he went to the uh, when he established the tank school, um, he went around and test drove tanks, and he said he really liked the Renault FT one seven. Um, he said it leaps up like a horse, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and will roll over small trees and everything. Um, which you know, it was a it was a it was a good light tank. Uh, the Americans did well with it. Again, you have to consider um, communication. Within a tank, oh, it's terrible. The time. They had none, right? It it was literally kicking the driver in the head. I mean, to the be gunner, fair, it hasn't changed that much. Right, right. <laughs> the gunner slash tank commander kicked the driver in the head, uh, depending on which way he wanted him to turn. So, <laughs> so you know, anytime, any anytime there's a tanker who who complains about about comms now, just be like, hey, look, he used to be. We kicked him in the head. Now we just kick him in the head just for fun. Yeah. I, um, I have a few old tank commanders who apparently were born in the wrong generation. <laughs> right, exactly. So so that's Samuel, and it's and it goes pretty well, especially because it was our own U like US led operation. Like we wrote the op board for it. We we resourced it on um yeah, we we used French equipment, but you know, we used French equipment for literally everything except for um our um our rifle on our sidearm, like everything else was French or British. So, uh, that's, that's what happens when you don't have a defense industry for like ever. <laughs> and you suddenly have to arm a lot of men really fast. Yeah. But that'll um, never happen again. Hmm. I wonder what, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. This is why they keep the historians in the back room because we're just gloom and doomers. Yeah. We're, 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 like, we're not fun uh, at parties. Yeah. Right. You're like, oh, you're doing that thing again. When you hit how that worked out last time. No. OK. This is why I don't get invited to parties or staff meetings anymore, which you know, <laughs> has mixed benefits. <laughs> but so anyway, Moors are gone. Um, kicks off in, in one of the craziest like it's like, all right, Samuel, biggest American battle ever with like over 300,000 troops engaged. Uh, all of a sudden in two weeks. And this is the deal that Pershing made with uh, Ferdinand Marshal Foch, uh, the the Allied Commander in Chief. Um, Pershing's like, "Let me have my own offensive," and Foch is like, "Yeah, but we need you here for the actual real big one where we're going to win the war." And Pershing's like, "I can do it," and Foch is like, "Okay, sure." <laughs> uh, um, and so they pivot from San Miguel. Uh, ending on September 14th to the Mers Argonne, beginning September 26th. 
Um, so that's like two weeks to suddenly move uh, hundreds of thousands of men, supplies, ammunition into a sector at night in secret. How'd that work out? It actually worked out really, 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 really well. Um, The Germans knew that an attack was coming at some point. They didn't know when. But like to give you an example of the like, just like the freaking Yankee ingenuity that these guys had. So the 28th Division was a National Guard division from Pennsylvania, uh, the Keystone Division. Still still are, actually. so they had to set up in sort of the beginnings of the Argonne forest. Um, the Argonne, by the way, is like, um, it's like that evil forest that like you always see in fairy tales. It's <laughs> not, like, a, oh, not a good sign. Yeah. That's where little German kids walk into and are never seen of again. And there are witches and like, like, but, but also like that's no shit where a lot of those stories came from. Um, so the the American the Americans are begging for their own sector, and the French are like, uh, "You can have this part because it sucks. <laughs> we don't want it um, because it's like this. It's nightmare land, um, and also the Germans have been there for four years, and they've entrenched the living shit out of it. It's like multiple lines of trenches built with concrete because the Germans built in concrete because they intended to live. Um, the Allies didn't because." Uh, they didn't want people to get too comfortable there. So, you know, yeah, the German trenches got to the point that they almost sound better than some of the fobs I was in Afghanistan. Did you ever go up to Mazari Sharif? Uh, the German? I, did, I did not. Okay. So best trip I ever took. Cause I, you know, as a weenie staff officer, I, I was doing recons everywhere and best trip I took was up to Mazari Sharif. Cause like all the U S fobs and cops are crap. They're yeah. dirty. They're nasty and filthy. They're laid out like, like an imbecile built them. Which, yep, you know, I'm a combat engineer. I'm an engineer, and and yeah, we built them probably. <laughs> but like, you get out. Like, we flew in, and I like walk out onto onto Mez, and I'm like, oh my god, that's like a that's like a beautiful chapel over there, built out of rock. Where did they get the rock? Well, all these streets are paved. There's like actual irrigation ditches were built out of concrete. And then like I see all the I see all the parked German uh armored fighting vehicles. I'm like, oh yeah, Germans were here. Definitely. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> it's kind of funny because my first tour in Afghanistan, uh, which was not in my book, uh, I w- I spent a lot of time with the French military in uh Capisa oh, in Capisa. Yeah. And, and uh Fobs Morales Frazier and Fob Kuchbach, and they are piles of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Like I, I believe it was Morales Frazier who actually was missing a wall. They uh oh my gosh. They had three sides Hesco baskets and the fourth side was just a dirt berm. Oh my god. Uh, Marquis de Valbon, the famous French engineer who really created engine like military engineering would be so sad by that. And it oh, was wow. the Alpine troops when I was there, the uh the lads yep. with the giant berets and yeah, uh, yeah. They're like, oh, yeah, we were going to fix it. But the guys before us said they were going to fix it. So we'll just leave it for the guys after us because they did like four to six months long tours. Oh, yeah. I'm like, come on, man. I'm here for the whole year. (laughs) Right. Well, it's like us, like the bee huts, the bee huts that we were living in were built by aviation guys. 
don't ever send aviation to build anything. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, this is, uh, I lean on this, it will fall down. Awesome. Good deal. Makes me uh, glad uh, I didn't fly in helicopters often. Uh, well, you know, you can fly with them fine. Just don't, like, ask them to build wooden structures. <laughs> But yeah, so the Germans, the Germans, uh, like this is an area, they had four lines of entrenchments, all named after a witch out of, um, uh, what is it? It's the, it's the, like the ring cycle by Wagner, because of course it is. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you've got like Brunhilde and, uh, Kriemhilde, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I'm making them up at that point, but, uh, <laughs> you get the, you get the picture. Um, four lines of, so like every trench is going to have a, a frontline trench, a supporting line trench. So it's not just like one trench, it's a network and it's a series and they're all pieced together with communication trenches. And you're going to have layers of barbed wire and pillboxes and, um, you know, all the good stuff that goes with the defense in depth. Right. And this is what the Americans have to attack into. So the 28th division, uh, the artillerists of the 28th, these good PA boys, um, they have orders to go set up battery positions on the like on the inner edge of the Argonne. Problem is, you start felling trees. One, that's a lot of noise. Um, two, um, any German recon flight is going to be like, oh, obviously that's a battery position. Right. So these guys are fucking geniuses. They wire the tops of trees together along their gun lines. They cut the base. And then that way, all they have to do is snap the wire. All the trees fall down in a perfect pattern and you can immediately fire. That is impressive. Like, It's like, how the hell did you think of that? And who was the guy who came up with that idea in a staff meeting and everybody was like, yeah, that seems reasonable. Right. Right. <laughs> probably, probably didn't even get an end of tour award. <laughs> Give that guy an AAM. Yep. He'll I mean, be all right. Certificate of appreciation. Why won't anyone re-enlist? It's the hard copy high five is all that That's is. Right. So uh so the so they assemble um uh fifteen divisions, but really you've got nine attacking divisions for the US, and then on either side you've got French. Um and it's part of, of Foch's um like hundred days offensive to end the end the war. So I mean, the Americans and the French are going to attack, and then later on, uh, the British are going to have an offensive, and then the French are going to have an offensive as well. So it's really they're slamming the the German line at multiple points. Um, so September twenty sixth, this thing starts off in the morning with a um, artillery bombardment that fires more munitions uh, than were fired in the entirety of the U.S. Civil War. It was in about, like, what, three hours? It was four hours long for the main bombardment. Some areas, some sectors had longer, uh, up to, to six or seven. Um, but that is like a, I can't even process that amount of, of high explosive. Yeah. And, and that's in living in that. The, the World War I era bombardments have always kind of blown my mind. Like somebody did. Uh, something where they made a recreation of a World War One artillery bombardment, and they're trying to get the, uh, the drum fire effect. Yeah, and uh, they're like, "Yeah, go ahead and put that on surround sound and listen to yeah. it for four days straight." Right, right. And the and the German the Germans came up with the idea of drum fire, which like like um, most German terms is you know it's incredibly uh, evocative, like 
Yeah, like you you hear it and you're like, or you you hear the word, you can immediately imagine that effect. The yeah. effect is to try to destroy the morale and you know physical being of anybody in the area. But really, a lot of it was morale, especially. Um, I wrote a piece a couple of years back on the the effects of World War One artillery and being under constant shell fire. Um, it literally causes your skin to contract, um, your eyes to begin to bulge out of your head. Um, if you are caught in the open, you know, the overpressure from the blast is going to get you, um, as much as the, the high explosive or shell fragments are. Uh, so it's really just, you know, it, it's, it's a psychological terror and it is a, a physical terror because, uh, you know, there's nothing like, um, nothing like shards of, of flying steel going right through you to make you reconsider your, your enlistment contract. <laughs> um, and actually during Samuel, the, the uh, they did a thing where they actually paused the bombardment for five minutes to allow for sound ranging from the engineers. And in that time, Germans came out of their trenches to respond to the attack that they knew was coming. And then the Americans opened up again with high, uh, high explosive and shrapnel shrapnel being, you know, that lovely like bunch of metal balls that flies overhead and then explodes and sends all the metal casings downward. And it's just really, really lovely and causes really horrific wounds. Um, yeah. I think it was, uh, Ernst Younger who said, uh, being yeah. trapped in a bombardment is like being tied to a wooden post. And then every time a shell fires, somebody swings a hammer at your head and you right. have to try to dodge it over and over and over again. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's utterly wild. Um, and so, you know, imagine that type and we're not just talking. So you've got everything from the 75 millimeter, um, light, like field guns to the one five fives, uh, the Schneiders, which are the, uh, like the, those were the U S sort of heavy medium field artillery, but then back further from the line, you've got the rail railway guns, um, you know, 14, 12, 12 inch, 14 inch, 16 inch guns. Like those are huge. They're enormous. They're, they're battleship guns or at the, actually at the time they're coast artillery guns that were sent over from the coast defenses in the U S to France. But I mean, um, just t- like the, the massive punch that those things could throw, uh, you know, just decimating a, a trench line. And so, you know, it's no surprise that on the morning of the 26th, uh, you know, the U S goes over the top nine divisions, uh, is slamming up against the line. Things are going pretty good. First of all, um, you know, they, uh, they, everyone's making pretty good advances. And then there's, uh, the, the 79th and the 37th, um, the, the Buckeye division from my, my old state of Ohio. Boo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're just sad. Cause you couldn't get Toledo. That's definitely a topic I'm going to be covering at a later point. <laughs> I mean, the question now is why would anybody want Toledo uh, you know, at the time? <laughs> I, I agree. And as someone who's been to the upper peninsula, I get it, but right. Still, so weird. It's, it's, it's the principle of the yeah. thing. Also, our governor was like 20. Right. <laughs> so, um, so these two divisions, they're, they're assaulting, uh, uh, the hill called, uh, Mont Falcon or the, the hill of the Falcon, which used to have a village on it. And then because it was world war one, that village got destroyed. <laughs> Just wiped <laughs> from the face of the planet. Pretty much. Um, I was, I was in France in July and like most of the area, like a lot of the areas that were where the summer fighting was have been kind of rebuilt or pretty much all rebuilt. Then you get into like the Merzargon 
And they'll just be like, you'll be driving along and there'll just be like a sign that says a village name and like in parentheses under it, like, you know, extinct or, or you know, whatever the right. French word is. Uh, and, and there's like, it's just ruins. And they, yeah, they could have rebuilt them, but I mean, a lot of it is they want to keep them as a perpetual memorial. And France show. has a tendency of doing that. They did that with a village that was wiped out by the SS in World War II. And then yes. there's like the Zone Rouge, which is completely contaminated with unexploded ordnance, but is also kind of a memorial with all the trenches still dug in and everything. And you will come across that. Like it is impossible to travel through um, Western France without coming across traces of World War One. I. I mean, it, it, to the extent of, you have the little things, which is, you know, every every single village uh, is going to have a memorial with the names of the uh, 1418 Le Um And then you'll you'll just be walking along and there'll be like um, a random U.S. memorial. And you're like, what the hell? Where'd that come from? We're <laughs> um, like, oh, yeah, that's right. Wherever we go, we put up shit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, so. So, you know, there's Montfaucon and it had been largely destroyed. And so the Germans like took that hill. It's a decent sized hill too, and built an observation towers on there and fortified the everlasting crap out of it. Um, and even though the Americans are advancing behind a creeping barrage, like literally like every five minutes, it would be time to shift forward 200 meters because it was timed with the advance of the infantry, which gives you an idea. These guys aren't running they're walking and that's still you, like terrifying like as you're yes. walking artillery is dropping right in front of you oh yeah no is it like you can watch videos of u.s troops advancing you're like run you assholes run yeah i've i've it's been like, near artillery and mortars when they went off i cannot imagine just calmly walking as it's rained down you know 100 meters in front of you or whatever it was right. that's well and especially unbelievable when you, when you have when you have um, your your expected losses from fratricide are like ten percent. Jesus Christ! That was, yeah, that was like a British calculation, and the Americans are like, "Whoa, wow!" Like, any, like anything else, we're going to do it bigger. Right, we're going to do twenty percent. <laughs> uh, but no, yeah. So they they're you know they advance behind the creeping barrage, a wall of shells falling in front of you, and you really better hope that those gunners um, know what they're doing. And by and large. You know, I will say this about our, our our gun bunny friends. Their American artillery is really damn good and always has been. Um, I don't know what it is. One of those young officers was uh, future President Harry Truman. He was in uh, Delta Battery of 129th Field Artillery. That's right. Good National Guardsman that he was. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he was putting a lot of rounds downrange that day. Um, and they so... They advance behind this thing and everyone is doing pretty well um, up and except, like I said, the 37th and 79th get hung up at Mafalcon because literally um, I was there and uh, the pillboxes like German they, for rebar in these things. They didn't use rebar. They used railroad ties. Because fuck you and everyone around you. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> like. These things are insane and, and, and they've got tiny little firing port, ports for the machine guns. And that was typical of the entire Meuse-Argonne line. Um, and, and it's called the Meuse-Argonne because uh, I've got the Meuse River in um, 
uh, to the west in the Argonne Forest. Uh, I'm sorry, the Merza River on the east, eastern side, and the Argonne Forest on the uh, the, the western side, sort of of the advance. Um, and that, that's like their their uh, right and left limits. Uh, and so they're advancing up this this alleyway um, of just guys who are dug in like this and the german army is like in this area it's like around 450,000 strong um uh, up against you know much you know like you've got like three you've got like um almost over a million um allied forces advancing against them but they keep moving they keep they keep being able to move uh, reinforcements back in um every time that they're able to hold the allies up somewhere they're able to pull a couple divisions from somewhere else and reinforce the lines. Of course, what this does is, you know, by the time when the British attack and when the French attack, um, now that that other part of the line is weaker. And so it really all goes to, to the benefit of the overall cause. But what it does is it means that these divisions, after they crashed through their first forward points, um, they're confronted with yet another fresh division. Um, and so, Pershing's massive 28,000 man divisions all of a sudden start getting used up like in a week. So that he, he planned for, well, what was his idea of an offensive where he just rapidly be able to replace his casualties like over a course of a day or two? Uh, no, I mean you, the division was supposed to be able to advance for like two weeks. Oh <clears throat> yeah. So what happens is um, these divisions are are getting slammed and um, like over, yeah, like I said, over the course of a week and they start having to be rotated out. Um, the other thing I should say about those divisions that made the attack, the majority of them uh, were pretty new. The veteran divisions had been the ones who uh, were at San Miel. Uh, there were a couple veteran divisions in, in the groups that, uh, and by veteran, I mean like they, been there since the spring or, or winter like they'd i mean we're not even talking like right yeah they'd survived a couple battles and they'd done some some uh frontline trench uh, defensive warfare duties so i mean it's not like better like not like survived four years of conflict um and the whole rotating so, soldiers out is is not a new idea that had to be something else he completely ignored the allies um and into telling him because the french had been doing that for years well, actually, the, so the French actually, they had been, but they hadn't been doing it well. Um, in 1917, uh, French General Nivelle uh, wanted to, he had been given the mission to retake the Chemin de Dame, which is a large ridge line in, uh, outside the city of Soissons in France, so sort of north, northwestern France. Um, very strategic position, captured by the Germans um, in, uh, I think it was 16 uh, or 16 or 15. Um, and they dug in. You, you can stand up on that ridge line, like look down. And you're like, oh, I'm looking almost straight down. And the French were attacking up this. And the Germans have basically the 240 Bravo. Um, that's what the MG08 was. Right. The machine Gewehr. I mean, it's very, very, very similar. Um and it's on so the the French took insane casualties. The movie Pads of Glory was based around here. This is where you have whole divisions mutiny. Um, oh, and okay, yeah, that's where the it's like the French almost break uh, with the unlikely hero being Field Marshal Patin, right? Um, you know the guy who then becomes a Vichy collaborator in World War II, An outright uh, Nazi, effectively, pretty much. Um, well, I mean. 
he you can really look at he's he's one of those tortured characters of history where he's like i watched my country die i don't really feel like doing that again i'll collaborate right and i and i get it um to an extent that like he's an interesting character of what are you willing to put up with to not go through with that again right right and and exactly and but but in so he's the guy who has to come in and like repair this and he does so he establishes new rotations of frontline units in and out of, out of uh, combat sectors implements a a much more generous leave policy um uh you know basically makes life a whole hell of a lot better for the average french soldier in the trenches um but uh, so the, in the Americans, um, we, we modeled our sectors very much off the French. Um, so we, even though we, like if a division was on the front line, it would be like, um, you usually have two, um, or you usually have like um, one battalion out of each of the four regiments forward. And there'd be three, three battalions in each regiment. So you'd have one forward and then one in support and then one in reserve. So not everyone is always on the front line attacking. Um, and that way you can kind of get a little bit of rest and a little bit of, um, you know, time out of the fight. Um, it didn't mean that like usually meant like you were attacking like every third day instead of every day. (laughs) (laughs) Take what you can get. Right. Um, but these guys are getting used up in like a week and a lot of them are national army divisions, um, which is where you get the 77th coming in with the lost battalion, um, which the national army, uh, museum um, did a whole tweet storm on that today, so I don't want to steal any of their thunder. But it's bizarre to me that like um, most people, if they know anything about World War One, the U.S. and World War One, they know the Marines at Bella Wood, they know the Lost Battalion, mm-hmm. and they know Sergeant York. Right. Sergeant York, I get like the dude was a straight up badass, crazy Christian sharpshooter. Like, right. <laughs> Some weird paradox some that kind is of an American Christian Terminator that uh, we have yet to right. harness his strength once again. Right. But like, you know, he's, he's the, like, the classic American paradox of, of war. I think like in a, oh, in a human totally. person, it's like I'm going to kill in order for there to not be any more killing. Um, yeah. And then you've got the Marines at Bella Wood and I'm like, all right, first of all, <laughs> you have the second division at Bella Wood uh, and without any artillery, those Marines are going to continue to be, um, well, basically shot down in the wheat fields like they were on the first few days of June when they attacked um, until they finally it took them a month to figure out that, oh, we need artillery to be able to advance in this thing. That's a whole other, whole other topic. Um, and then you've got the Lost Battalion, which is like the story of officers who can't land nav for shit. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what. <laughs> and like, and it's funny they made a movie out of it, and the whole beginning of the movie, all they were doing was talking shit about, I, what's his name, Major Whittlesey. Right. Yeah. Uh, like, well, what do you know? You're just some commissioned lawyer from New York, and it turns out they were right. He didn't know how to land half. Exactly. I mean, he's a, he's a tra- he's a tragic story in himself, and, yes. and, and I don't mean to tarnish his history, but or his right. his legacy, but uh, yeah. Well, and that's uh, the Lost Battalion story is it is one side of the world of the American experience in World War One because it is essentially these are untrained men. Um, doing the best that they can with what they have uh, thrown in way too quickly. 
Right. And um, the idea of like people and, and, like lawyers and, and people who worked in fashion uh, getting commissioned isn't anything new exactly. It's yeah. it's a, a an age-long tradition of just commissioning all the rich people who have power in the, whatever country's putting an army together. I mean, that, right. that's happened ever since they stopped giving people titles like Duke. Right, right. Well, and, you know, the whole buying your commission deal. Right, right. The, the Brits cut straight to the chase. Like, you got to get some extra money? pounds awesome. laying around? Cool. Welcome yeah. to the club, Lieutenant. Right. But uh, it's, it's also very fascinating to look at, because there were some really good National Army officers. Um, there were also some really, really good National Guard officers. Um, but it's also really fascinating to see just, like, just what a little bit of training does beforehand goes a long way in combat. Oh, yeah. Um, and so that's so you. But again, like this is a new kind of war. So maps at the time, a map that Major uh, Whittlesey would have had or any of his lieutenants would have been. Um, it would only show the enemy. Precisely for the reason you don't want a lieutenant wandering off with a map that shows all your friendly forces uh, and then getting <laughs> captured. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, so they're doing they're doing the essential elements of friendly information, um, and you know, higher up you go, you'll start to see more of the, your your friendly and enemy templated. But on these maps, I mean, you're not only looking; it's not only showing you um, your terrain, but it's also showing um, pretty much everything you need to do for to call for artillery. Um, it'd be divided into sectors. They were beginning to figure out that TRPs were a thing. Um, so they're very, very critical. But map reading, as we all know, is a perishable skill. And you don't get that in just two weeks of training before you come overseas. Uh, so the veteran divisions were the ones who did well because um, they'd actually had a chance to be in France a little bit longer and just train um, because the the stateside training wasn't really adequate enough to get these guys into combat shape. I mean, there replacements would come in. Uh, to veteran divisions and be like, Sergeant, how do I load my rifle? And these guys are like, are you fucking kidding me? You know, <laughs> load, oh my God, we're all going to die. Um, but to, to kind of, you know, counter that, these kids with their college educated, like they're these, the, the, the class of Harvard and Yale, they're all running out there eagerly, uh, leading them, break the damn Hindenburg line. Like, if you're saying that, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, they, you know, the German army uh, in World War One was probably one of the best armies in the world. And I would actually I would posit that the German army of World War One was far superior to the German army of World War Two. Um, not having Nazis around helps. But um, sure, these 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 kids, they do. They they bust open the Hindenburg line and then start actually making space and like making room, like pushing through. And all of a sudden there's divisions advancing, um, divisions getting swapped out, veteran divisions going in. And then they're punching in these big, massive holes, you know, up measuring into the miles. And, you know, when you're measuring miles in world war one, that's um, nuts. That's months or years of fighting. Most of the time. That's like from here to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and they're doing it where they're doing it with tanks. They're learning how to operate with tanks. Like, you know, why do I carry a cane as a uh, as a as a infantry line officer so I can slam on the side of this tank? And you're like, <laughs> hey, shoot over there. Um, 
and they're doing combined arms operations. And there's a great moment during the Merzargon where uh, a German line is under fire from uh, from U.S. armor, uh, machine gun fire, 37 millimeter gun fire from the Renaults. And all of a sudden, their trench gets strafed by aviation. And then before they know it, uh, there's infantry coming around on their flanks and just rendering the position untenable. And it's like, it's like the god of war, the god of combined arms operations leans out of the sky and says, see, I made this shit, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and they learn. Um, uh, but it comes at a profoundly terrible cost. Uh, you know, you've got, um, there were 120,000 U.S. dead from World War I. Um, half from disease, half from, from battle. And the majority of those battle losses come during the Mars are gone, uh, precisely because it is a month and a half slug fest uh, from September 26th all the way to November 11th. Uh, and those are, they're, they're brutal. I mean, the Germans, uh, in most sectors, the Germans are using as much gas as possible. Um, by by the, the last month of the war, Pretty much everybody's on the on a frontline position is spending most of their time in a gas mask. Ugh, God, that's terrible. Yes. And I mean, this that's is like, also around the same time of the Spanish flu outbreak through the lines, correct? Right. So you have the Spanish flu hitting, um, which is actually hitting the U.S. harder than it is the frontline troops. But the frontline, remember, this is yeah, France is beautiful, but this is also northern France. Like all the guys who went over, are like I expected sunny France. What is this bullshit? It is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the it's cold uh everyone's getting either spanish influenza or diphtheria because you know these fun diseases are still around and um and it's just it's just miserable the mud is back um trying to fight in mud in a gas mask and and attack in that rather than just like you know go out and fight for a couple hours, then go back to your, like go out on a patrol for a couple hours, then go back to your dugout and like try to get warm and eat a rat for dinner. Um, <laughs> like that's, that's superior than continuing to attack over and over and over, uh, into, uh, in, you know, intense uh, gunfire. But by, you know, by November 11th, you know, as we all know, they, they pushed the Germans to the point where they would be willing to, uh, to accept an armistice. Um, which again, you know, that's a negotiated piece. It's not even a um, what did the Germans call it? Um, peace with honor, and the Allies called it peace without victory. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, um, and again, one of those like one of the things that I'll get really mad about on Twitter around the time of Veterans Day, on Veterans Day, on Armistice Day. Oh boy, is that what's that? I said, I said oh boy, uh, <laughs> it, it's it's like the great day of internet-wide historical revisionism. Right, yeah. So I'm going to get on there, and I'm going to be cursing out Pershing for ordering attacks on the morning of from 9.30 a.m. to 11 a.m. Um, when they knew that, that the armistice had been signed, um, resulting in the deaths of hundreds, if not thousands, of more uh, Americans. That didn't need to happen because Pershing believed that he needed to show the Germans that even though the war was over, we were still willing to fight. That, um, and of course, beyond he, absurd. <laughs> yeah. 
And so he got called in front of Congress for it because it was it was the states actually who got really upset about it, especially a lot of the National Guard units tended to wield some political power because, you know, you've got congressmen and senators working for you. Right. And but they so it so amazingly got to the point where Congress, um, they had him before Congress. um, And I say amazingly because, like, you know, as an American a victorious American general, you kind of, kind of do whatever the hell you want. Um, yeah. But, uh, and so he, yeah, he got called in there and asked about that, but he, you know, nothing ever came of it. Um, which is an interesting facet. Um, speaking of Congress involved in war. Um, so within like the first year, I think in 1862 of the civil war, um, there was a congressional inquiry into the oversight of the war. And the uh, Spanish-American War took like five minutes and Congress was like, whoa, what are you guys doing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in World War One, it was within six months, Congress being like, why doesn't anyone have any goddamn machine guns? <laughs> oh, why, why does our army not have machine guns? And we're like, uh, working on it, trying to get some contracts, you know. There was a, a an, there was an interesting little footnote of history where uh, we didn't have any light machine guns. So we're like, fuck it, we'll just have the French give us the show show and port it over to three hundred eight. And there uh, is, and it was terrible. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to disagree violently. Well, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not point. saying this. I'm not saying the show show in general is a bad gun. I'm saying because like it it gets no, a, the- it gets a bad rap in history. In general, does get a bad rap because um, the first version they got with the 308 for the American rather than the was it the eight millimeter label millimeter label yeah yeah it was it just didn't work. No, it was the same time. Anytime we try to rechamber weapons, it's like oh wait, this doesn't really work that well. Yeah, and this but is before like designers and computers, and they're just like, well, let's just switch right. these parts out and see what happens. Precision, precision machinery. Yeah. Uh, so. World War Two, you get the Truman Commission on the conduct of the war by like 1942-43. I say all this because there's a really long trend of Congress being involved heavily anytime that we have a war. Um, I'll just go ahead and let my silence <laughs> indicate how I feel about... <laughs> As a historian, all I can do is go, uh, have you guys like, you guys want to weigh in on the past 17 years? Like, yeah, it's, you know, if you, I mean, granted the, the, all, all the investigations into the, the world wars obviously didn't do a whole lot. Otherwise per, everybody would like, so well, why did you kill these thousand people for no reason? Uh, well, they, it definitely, well, one thing it did is it, a lot of it cut down on graft um, within government spending. Um, it did like like the the first investigations into World War One did spur the War Department to be like, yeah, no, you're right. We we should have been working on machine gun designs um, rather than like the latest um, you know army uniform design that we just came up with just now. Do you like this big giant hat? Uh, <laughs> and um, so it, it it and it continued to to generally be positive. The Truman Commission was incredibly effective because Harry Truman was boss um, in in maintaining good civilian control over over the military. 
Um, oh yeah, he definitely he sh- and he showed that when he got effectively challenged by yeah MacArthur in Korea, and he's like, ha, ha, "You're fired." Right. It's like, son. Yeah, I know you were at Samuel too, but I don't care. Yeah. You should have become <laughs> you were, a civilian. You were posing on the side of a hill with Patton, and each of you were looking down at your crotch, each other's crotch, and wondering which one was bigger. I was providing actual fire support. Uh, and yeah, I got a lot of hate but, for do, uh, dedicating almost half of an entire episode trash talking Patton, and I don't care. I hate Patton, and I say that as a tank crewman. Right. Right. So I don't, I'm so mixed on him. Like, I mean, it, it's acceptable. I, he's I think. just so overblown. Yeah. And I it's mean, acceptable to so think overblown. somebody is a, a decent commander, but also just like the worst human being imaginable. And also just don't give him an army command. Like the guy was good at with a division, but you give him an army and you're like, uh, dude, what happened to all your supplies? That was yeah. for, that was for a certain period of time. You can't just blow them all at once. Like it's like crazy party with hookers and cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also what's this thing about you hitting your soldiers? Right. Your soldiers and oh look at all these lovely anti-Semitic comments you've made. Do you realize who we are fighting? Yeah, right. Have you sent a letter to your cousin wife yet? <laughs> oh man. Yeah, and I find MacArthur more repugnant somehow because he he has the image of being sweet. At least Patton is like, you know, vulgar and dirty, and MacArthur's like, I'm this beautiful boy hero. Yeah, with my damn blue eyes. You're like, motherfucker, you left those guys in the Philippines and then had the audacity to cold shoulder their, the, the GOs who actually had the courage to like make some decisions about what to do with the garrison um, after the war, after you were sitting in Australia telling them to attack. And they're like, with what? Like, we've just taken rats and stretched them out and like using their poop as machine guns. <laughs> and, and then like kind of trying to commit a soft coup during Korea and bringing out like a full on nuclear war. Right. Uh, yeah. So no Truman, Truman, Truman's boss, like I said, uh, so back to world war one. Well, uh, it, it, the, the Mirzargan offensive was, um, is understudied, um, because there's a lot of small unit actions in there. Um, George C. Marshall, who, you know, he's my replacement in the sort of uh, pantheon of American generals for MacArthur and Patton. Um, and I don't say that just because my Internet persona is a staff officer and, and he was a perpetual staff officer. <laughs> uh, I think I just think he's the smartest guy who's ever worn the uniform. But he he oversaw um, after World War One when he was running the infantry school or um, he, he put together or oversaw the putting together of infantry in battle, which if you've never read it is a really great compilation of small unit tactics, not just from the, in world war one, not just from the U S perspective, but German, British and French. Um, and it goes down to like the company and platoon level. And so you really get a good solid background of, um, you know, really some of the, some of the best armies in the world, uh, some of the best leaders and, you know, some of the not so best. And because as we all know, you often learn more from the guys who don't do it well, uh, than the guys who do it really well. So, uh, is it anything else you have on, on the close of the American chapter of the great war? Oh man. Um, 
If people are more interested, definitely um, read more on the topic. I, I would encourage everyone to because um, not only does it shape the modern U.S. military, um, it also shapes who we are as a country. We really came of age during that war and we came of age and then we had a Great Depression where no one wanted to think about coming of age. Like you don't want to think about your your 16th birthday party when you're hungover at 22. Um and then, and then we hit World War II, um, and that completely overshadowed everything uh, in the past because it was just so monumental for the nation. Um, but we wouldn't have had the army of World War II without the experience of World War I. We would still probably be stuck back somewhere uh, in the Spanish-American War mode. Um, we really created – that was a, the true modernization of the army. And also, it's just these cast of really – amazing characters um so if you want to read more on the topic um i'll go ahead and put the shameless plug out there for angrystaffofficer.com um just I'll plug uh, away man it, yeah, Pl- plug your the, pluggables <laughs> it's one of the uh one of the like last 10 articles i wrote i think was a, a world war one reading list um for, to kind of get people familiar with the U S and the war and dig a little bit deeper. Um, some great stuff from firsthand accounts to, uh, to some nice dry history for those of us who, who enjoy such things. It's like a dry wine. It just comes with age. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I never heard it like that before. Uh, that's cause, uh, the gin just introduced it to our lexicon. I'll accept um, that. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, definitely. You know, more shameless plug. Uh, check out the War Stories podcast if you want to hear more about Patton and MacArthur's standing on a hillside moment uh, where they, oh God, they're such prima donnas. <laughs> but uh, we get a season on armor uh, and a season on marksmen and then a whole whole collection of a uh, series we call Loose Rounds, which kind of uh, hits on like literally everything in between. We've done crazy like we've delved into some weird stuff like ships built out of ice and, and wood shavings. Oh yeah. Um, that was the Canadian one, right? Yeah. P- pick Crete, which, uh, the British were like, well, let's build an aircraft carrier out of it because the British are all about any, literally any idea to win the war by world war two when they're the <laughs> only ones hanging on like, yeah, whatever. We don't care how crazy it is. Let's try it. It's going to be better than what we've, anything we've done so far. Um, <laughs> And then if, if people are at AUS, uh, the AUSA conference this coming week, uh, we'll be doing, uh, Aiden Dobkin and I will be doing a live show of, uh, of war stories at, uh, 1400 on Monday, October 8th. Uh, so come and check us out. And, uh, I, I can't promise that I will be as, um, ginned up as I normally am during episodes. So, but. You know, I'll, I'll I'll be there. Where where is the AUSA conference at? Why do you have to ask me questions that I have to Google? Well, I mean, like general vicinity. In case I, I I don't know where my fans are located, but I'd like to think I've at least one in every state. Washington D.C. ish. Okay, uh, it's at the weirdly named like Washington. You know what? I can't even remember the name of it. Yeah, when we find out, I'll I'll put it in the show notes. Um, but thank you so much for for coming on. Um, it was like because I remember probably a year ago, if not more than that, I was following you on Twitter because you're super entertaining and you, you're 
you make his you make history super accessible and understanding for people. And that was before I was you know started my my road to becoming a sad depressed grad student like I am now. Hey, we've all been there. It's okay. <laughs> and there's, there's a support club. Yeah, it, it all it all comes with liquor. Uh, so yes. it, it, you know, it, I'm I'm glad we I could get you on the show. That's amazing. Um, and if you, Dude, I'm I'm the honor is mine. This has been a lot of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, likewise, I very much enjoy following you on social media, and uh, I'm vastly impressed with your literary talents and abilities to be able to get. Like I I first saw your book mentioned. I can't remember where. And I started reading it. I'm like, this is actually good. <laughs> and I say actually, because a lot of the stuff that comes out about, uh, <laughs> you know, with the stuff about Afghanistan and Iraq has been a little bit, um, uh, not all, great. Yeah. <laughs> it, it all kind of goes into two categories. And that is like scholarly or chest beating bullshit. And yeah, uh, exactly. It's like, I'm going to die on a pile of brass. And you're yeah. like, why <laughs> couldn't you find any place better to die? <laughs> yeah. I, I would like to say mine's the third option for the normal, mostly normal functioning reading public who doesn't like to read about epic bacon veterans. Right. Right. And that's how, like, that's also how I characterize my, my blog. Cause when I started out, I was like, all right, you've got like, you've got the scholarly people, like you've got War on the Rocks and Strategy Bridge and Small Wars Journal. And they're like putting immense, serious thought into stuff. And it's like, you know, it's heavy. And then you've got like the other side and you look over and there'd be dragons. And it's just like, everybody's like, it's like my AR-15 is better than your AR-15 because I put 10 attachments on it versus eight. Yes. Like, dude, uh, calm down. Did you just come out with yet another military themed coffee? Awesome. Um, (laughs) and then I was like, you know what? There's gotta be a space in between that can talk about serious things, but not take itself seriously. Yeah. And that was kind of where I opted to go into. And, uh, I think that's why we're, we're kind of on the same wavelength. Yeah. And there needs to be someone who, Obviously, I don't think I'm that person, but there needs to be some group of people who wants to bridge the civilian military divide and oh, 100%. and and kind of teach people how one there there's not two worlds. There's simply one and one is made from the other and all of our history right. affects each other. Yeah, we're just a microcosm of of society. Like, that's all we are. We have the same weirdos, the same good people, bad people, just. You know, they just wear a uniform and sometimes their actions can have a little bit more difference, which is kind of terrifying sometimes. But um, yeah, man, it's like we are like anytime I get to go do a talk at a school or a college or like guest lecture, I'm like, we are you don't don't be like, oh, you're you're part of this elite. I'm like, no, I am you. I will. I have from you. I came and unto you. I shall return. (laughs) Yeah. That's kind of the way it goes. It's really strange being venerated uh, because I grew up as ghetto Detroit trash and uh, like (laughs) I still almost the same person. So, (laughs) well, and and it's, it's a, it's a sign of uh, the, uh, 
you know, the loyalty that the, the military can, can bring is that I can respect you being from Michigan, having been born in the great state of Ohio. So, uh, you know, it, it, it crosses all cultures and boundaries. <laughs> but we're still looking at each other with suspicion over Toledo. Oh, yeah. No, I will totally never let that go to my dying <laughs> day. <laughs> so, uh, you know, again, thanks for coming on. You're always welcome back if you ever can escape your real duties every day being a officer in the army. Um, you can follow me on all the Twitter stuff at uh, jcast99 or the show at lions underscore by. Uh, so thank you, everybody. Uh, thank you, staffer, for dropping in. And uh, I'll let you go back to your dinner and gin. <laughs> thanks, man. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. Hi, this is Nate Bethay, and I'm the producer of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. This show is brought to you by Audible, and as it just so happens, Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys and browse the selection of audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. Once again, that's www.audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys to get started.